Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the podcaster who have the Analyze Asia podcast as a side project and in my spare time, I want to know how Spotify's recent podcasting acquisitions will transform Asia Pacific. You are listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia and today I have Graham Brown, founder of the Asia Tech Podcast. Welcome Graham and it's a great honour to have you on our podcast for the first time. Yeah, thank you Bernard, it's an honour to be here. We have met, we have actually had lunch, we discussed a lot about how the podcasting market has been working and you being a founder of Asia Tech Podcast and Pitch Tech Asia TV as well. And I've seen a lot of your video clips on LinkedIn. Before I get into all those interesting projects that you have been working on or maybe even turning into a proper company now, I wanted to get to know you better, Graham. How do you start your career? Yeah, it's a long story, but I'll keep it short. It's a great story as well to understand where it all started. But I think I've been a storyteller all along. You know, I studied psychology and artificial intelligence. I was very curious about how things worked. I think stories really are a tool for us as individuals or even companies as well to understand the world, to understand how we fit into the world. So I think as well, I mean, if you've lived in many countries and gone to different schools as a kid, then you become very good at telling stories. You know, you, you tell stories to fit into the world. So that's a skill that I developed early on. And it was only sort of like natural that I found my feet in industries like communications and marketing, which were all about storytelling. So that's how I got my start. I mean, I'm a storyteller, but, it, you know, stories can obviously sound quite negative with kids telling stories. But, you know, I think in the adult world, they have their place because they're, they're extremely powerful in business. In terms of thinking about storytelling, I mean, you also gone through also a corporate career. I understand you actually worked in real estate prior to doing this, right? Or are you still working on it? And then this was a side project and then eventually evolve into a full-time project for yourself? Real estate is my side business. So, I mean, it, long, long time ago, I mean, I was you know involved in two businesses, one in telecoms, one in real estate. I had two businesses and somebody asked me like, why do you do these two things? They're like unrelated. But I said to them, you know, well, what are the two things you leave your house with every day? And the, you know, what have you got in your pockets? And it was a mobile phone and house keys. And I don't think that's going to change for a hundred years, maybe. That's you know only going one way. So that's why I decided I wanted to be into those industries because you know th those are industries that are universal. And I think once you're sort of in universal industries, you can sort of see universal patterns of behavior as well. And that that really fascinates me again as a storyteller. I actually haven't asked you before. So what brought you from where you are to Asia? I actually first moved to Asia in 1995, Bernard, which was just when I graduated. At the time, Japan was like a thing. You know, a lot of people graduate now and they move to, they go to China, they you know, they go and find themselves in Shanghai, for example. But for me, it was, you know, Sony and Panasonic and all, all the names which are like big back in the 80s that I grew up with. And I thought I had to be part of that. I actually went to my careers advisor in, after graduating with an artificial intelligence degree. And I sat in the careers library and he got out like the, the ring bound folder, which it was careers back then. And he said, well, what did you study? And I said, artificial intelligence. He said, what's that? And I said, well, you know, it's machine intelligence. He said, scratched his head and then he said, what have you got for me? And he looked through and he said, nothing. And I said, okay, fine. He said, well, there must be something I can do. He said, why don't you teach English in Japan? And I thought, okay, I'll take it. You know, that just, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously at the time I thought that was the last resort, but it just opened up a new doorway for me. Obviously, if I graduated with AI now, I'd be master of the universe with Facebook and Google and so on. But it was very different back then. But that's how I got my start. I think it was just that sense of adventure. I wanted to get out there and explore what the world had to offer. Other than Japan, have you been to other countries within Asia before moving to Singapore? I mean, in 2012, I sold my 
telecoms business. And uh, at the time, I said to my wife that I didn't want to start a new business. and I didn't need to. So we traveled the world for about four years. We lived all over the place. We lived in Spain, we lived in Cyprus, but then we came back. To, we went through New Zealand and you traveled all over Southeast Asia, lived out in Okinawa for a bit, and then moved back to Japan for a while. Because, you know, actually living on a tropical island is, it kind of get boring after a while for an entrepreneur. We headed back towards Tokyo and spent about, I wanted to get my son into school, you know, learn his mother tongue. So we did three years in, in Japan. Yeah. So th that was the thing before we moved to Singapore. I, I sort of spent a lot of time in Asia and I've had businesses, I've set up businesses in India, right down in Kerala in the South. So, Spiritually, I think I'm more Asian than anything else. From your career journey, what are the interesting lessons that you learn and you want to share with my audience? Yeah, I think, you know, storytelling, I suppose, is one of those lessons. It's like I've learned that storytelling isn't just a way of increasing value in business. It is the value. You know, why do people drink Coke and not Pepsi when Pepsi tastes better? And I think it comes down to the fact that you know, what I learned is that it really is about how you frame everything and put everything into context and the challenges that companies have and communicating with people. And I saw this because I worked extensively in the telecoms industry is about, you know, telling a story about who you are and how you fit into their world because, you know, technology does not sell itself. So this is the challenge that we have. I mean, I'm a technologist, I'm an AI guy at heart. And, you know, it's like, you know, we think the technology is good and therefore that should sell itself. Well, actually, you know, I think if you look at the data that the average 17-year-old American grows up seeing 170,000 marketing messages by their 17th birthday, right? So think about that. It's that our message as a technologist, you know, whether you're on a project or you're a startup founder or whoever, it's just one of those messages. It's just part of the noise. So, you know, I really learned that that is really powerful. If you can get that right, you know, why are people like Steve Jobs so masterful at communicating with people? Because they're great storytellers. And that's what I learned. And I think it's bringing that into technology and helping people understand that really sort of unlocks for them, you know, many barriers that they face when they're trying to sort of get out to our customers and investors and so on. It's very interesting that you mentioned the concept of storytelling. And I think it's pretty important in what you're currently doing, which is also the main theme of today. I want to talk about Asia Tech Podcast and also podcasting trends in Asia Pacific in general. And I think that there are some big industry movements that have been happening and I would like to hear your thoughts on that. But before getting into those major trends, I want to ask you, what's the backstory behind Asia Tech Podcast and your other venture, the Pitch Jack Asia TV? I started Asia Tech Podcast really as a hobby. You know, I had moved back to Japan. I was pretty much semi-retired, but I was doing this because I wanted to keep my hand in the world of technology and entrepreneurship. You know, one thing led to another. It started to become popular and people started to be interested and actually listen to it. It just sort of went from there. So it was like, okay, this has got to a point now where I have to make a decision. Do I continue this as a hobby or do I now take this up a level and turn this into a business? You know, I was living by the sea in Japan and it was like a very nice existence and I could have done that for the rest of my days. But there was something inside as an entrepreneur thinking, I could build this. You know, I could really make this grow and tell all these stories and, and enable all these startup founders to tell stories on the podcast. So, you know, you get to that sort of fork where you have to take a decision. Either I stay in that sort of comfortable lifestyle or I take a big risk. And taking a big risk meant moving from where we were in Japan to Singapore. You know, we risked everything and came here because of this idea and this dream of building the podcast and the business, the media business. If you're an entrepreneur, you'll get that because, you know, being comfortable is 
is not exactly a, it's not a it's not a measure of success at all it's probably failure for an entrepreneur you know you want to be constantly challenging yourself why the choice of actually moving to singapore i mean given where you are in japan or maybe even if you want to cover the greater china hong kong might be a better location i mean i'm very curious to know about what are your thoughts on why setting up in singapore and then using that to branch out to the rest of asia pacific yeah i mean this is a question that we considered for a very long time and we looked at all the options and did the scouting went to all these places spent time there looking around spoke to people who had done that in different, you know, whether it's Hong Kong or Shanghai and so on. I think, you know, as an entrepreneur, if you're thinking about moving somewhere, obviously you have to think about what the the business options are there as well. But you also have to live there. I think that's something worth thinking about is that people don't realize, you know, for example, there are many cities and I won't name them in the world, which are great startup hubs, but lifestyle wise, they're not so great. You know, many of the places in China, for example, like that, you're accessing a lot of startup entrepreneurs and founders and equity and so on. Yet the lifestyle there is not so great. So I think, especially when you're at a point in life where you've got a family, you have to make a decision that's best for you first and the family, right? Rather than necessarily for business. So Singapore, I think, checks all the boxes. It's great, fantastic lifestyle here. Obviously, it's not cheap. It's not a place you come and bootstrap, obviously. But I think what it has that Japan doesn't have is a culture of entrepreneurship. So Japan has technology and innovation and all that. But if you're a startup entrepreneur in Japan, you might as well be a yoga teacher, right? No offense to yoga teachers. That's great. But the point is, is, it's like an alternative lifestyle as opposed to a career path. But here in Singapore, it's much more accepted. So I think at the end of the day, I mean, what I've learned from all these travels is that at the end of the day, what makes you happy is people, being around the right people, not having great, you know, fantastic beach at your doorstep or fantastic scenery and all that. What makes it happen is the people. And for me, the people were the entrepreneurs I needed to be around those people those are my tribe so you know that's why Asia Tech Podcast here in Singapore made complete sense because that is where I could find the most entrepreneurs in a condensed area then how about Pitch Tech Asia TV I mean from podcasts, you also branch into video as well. I think that's also an interesting story that I also want to get from you as well. Yeah, so Pitch Tech Asia TV is a show that's come out of Asia Tech Podcast. So Asia Tech Podcast is effectively an agency. It has its own show. It enables other people's shows. Uh, Pitch Tech Asia TV is one of the shows that has spun out of that. And basically, it's a show where startup founders come into the studio, they sit with me, they tell their story, they do their pitch, we go through their pitch deck, we learn about what they're doing, the why, the backstory, and then you know how much money they're raising. Now, angel investors watch that show. And the reason they watch that show is because it's due diligence for them. They can watch pitches without having to go to pitch competitions. They can look for the companies they're interested in and narrow it right down. So Pitch Deck Asia TV really fixes a problem that there is in the industry, the startup ecosystem, which is you know how do startup founders and angel investors, early stage investors connect. The models that are out there are really broken. You know, five minute pitches or speed dating. It doesn't work. You know, people connect angel investors invest in founders and they invest in story. You know, I always wonder if you put the Google boys on a stage, how they would do, they'd probably be pretty damn awful in a pitch competition. And so it, it begs the question, you know, how, how do we identify the next Google? Because chances are those kind of, that kind of talent does not do well in competitions or in that sort of format. But yet, if you were to sit them in a studio, relaxed, talk, I mean, like this conversation now, it's, it's not, you know, in any way threatening or journalistic. It's like, understand that person and their backstory. That is what investors are looking for. So Pitch Deck Asia TV came out of that. There's a real need out there for angels and startup founders to connect in a better way. And that's what we're trying to do with the, the TV show and the podcast that goes with it and the event built around 
you know, connecting angels and startups. What are the themes behind Asia Tech Podcast and who are the intended audience? Asia Tech Podcast is really about the voice of startup entrepreneurs in Asia and, and the people who are telling stories. The intended audience are founders and investors and ecosystem builders, podcast hosts, anybody in that space, just to get that conversation started. Who's out there? Who's doing interesting stuff? Who's got an interesting story? Who can inspire other people through their stories, whether you know they're podcast hosts or they're founders who... You know, every single founder has an interesting story to tell. I don't think necessarily they know it until they actually tell it or try recall it to somebody like me. So I want to get those stories out because, you know, there are four and a half billion people here in Asia. There's 30 million startups. Just think about that in the context, how many amazing stories there are out there. And, you know, I wanted to create a platform for that. That's who comes on the show and that's who the audience is. Mm. And... I, I think it's interesting because I think, well, we have talked about this because the way we both split audience, have we have very different ways of thinking about the audience that we have. I want to understand a, a little bit more on that. How do you grow the Asia Tech Podcast? You start from maybe a few founders, a few entrepreneurs, and then you eventually branch out and then you start looking for very interesting projects. I know that there are a couple of podcasts that actually, uh, actually work through your your podcast as well. I think Simon Kim is probably one interesting person who I spoke to have very deep insights on social media. How do you grow the audience and at the same time growing the podcast uh, by building so many stories? Yeah, so I think the, the, your best audience is your your first fans, isn't it? You know, the, the people who really get what you're trying to do and, um, you know, start with those. So your guests are your first audience, obviously. You know, if, if you want to build an audience by attrition, if you like, it's in, keep inviting guests on the show because every single one that should listen to your show and that, you know, in theory, and they, they should also recommend it to other people. So I think that's the way to do it. Um, you, organically through people, you know, I think ultimately at the end of the day, all you have to do is plant a flag and, you know, be brave enough to take the arrows and say, this is what I'm doing. And, you know, I'm podcasting about this. I'm un unapologetic about what I'm talking about. You know, I'm not podcasting about that. And in time, it will pay off. The key point to that, Bernard, and we, we've talked a lot about this, is time. It takes time. And I think, you know, th those who want quick wins in podcasting won't find it yet. But, you know, the growing the audience is, is organic. It's identify your tribe. It's, you know, really one listener at a time and, and you know, communicating with your audience. I think you're very good at this, you know, talking to your audience and, and interacting with them. So all, all the things that a brand should do with their, you know, their customers, a podcast host should do with their audience as well. And it's a long-term play. I totally agree with you on that with the longer term view of thinking about podcasts. I think we have also seen a lot of podcasts that emerge and died off very quickly because they didn't realize that this is actually a game of greed and perseverance rather than a game of trying to do fast growth. Because I think podcasting, unlike content news media, is very non-zero sum. In fact, I think the more podcasts we have, the more everyone gets to grow, which, which is very different from all the other media outlets I've seen so far. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're educating the market as well, aren't we? I mean, you know, that's key. 
it, it's a it's a very big market, and we've got to obviously you're one of the pioneers in that market. It takes people to stand up, take a risk, and stick to it because you will face a lot of criticism early on about you know why are you podcasting, why don't you do this, why didn't you do YouTube video like the thirteen year old kids are doing, right? So or why didn't you why didn't you have Instagram? I think you have to because of that. You know we we are educating a market. You can't do that alone. It's a very costly exercise, and it, you know it could drive you insane trying to do it. So the fact that we can work together on that is great. Like you say, it, it's win-win, really. I'm very curious. I mean, you have been very prolific in the last two years, and you have probably have amassed more interesting guests than me on your podcast. Can you tell me some of them? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think we've both done quite well. It's, I think, I mean, we've done over 400 episodes now, and obviously, my memory now is going to. Fade as I try and recall some of the guests, but I'll give you an example of people who have been on recently. And I just give you these examples because I think they sort of connect with me personally. And this is sort of what makes a great guest: um, somebody you connect with emotionally. I had uh, Magnus Grimmeland from Ant, who's the founder of Antler. He came in the studio, and I, I really liked him as an individual because we shared a lot of similarity. I mean, he he does Ironman triathlon as well, like me, but he's a bit more on the extreme. You know, he, he used to be a, a Navy SEAL and an ice climbing instructor. Right, so you know, he's on the edge. Like, sitting with somebody like him, who you know, you know, was a co-founder of Lazada and worked at McKinsey and so on, you really learn. I think the great guests you learn from. And he was talking about the spike, which was that characteristic that he looks for in founders when they bring them into their accelerator. You know, what do they have? Even if you're interested in that, go and listen to the the episode. But it's the spike, that personality spike that great talent has. And he knew it more than anybody else. And I really enjoyed that episode. I really learned a lot. Other ones as well. I mean, JW Yao. So Zhao Wen Yao, she's the founder of MegaX. She's had about $25 million in exits. And I loved, you know, coming into the studio, it could go either way. They could be the kind of person who can't communicate, the kind of person who's just full of themselves. Yet I remember in her first line, she sat there across the table from me and, and said, um, "You know, at school I was a deviant." This is a Singaporean saying that on record, right? And a, a woman as well. Importantly, as soon as she said that, I thought, "Yeah, this woman is badass." It's like I really want to hear this story because that takes a lot of bravery to come onto a public show and say that. So she must have all her story worked out. That was a really good show, and she was really inspiring because I can imagine a lot of you know teenage girls who are sort of trying to find their place in the world listening to a story like that and thinking, actually, I'm different. I'm a bit of a deviant, but here's a great role model for me to follow. And, and lastly, uh, one that just happened last week, I spoke to Vinnie Loria. Who's the founding partner of Golden Gate Ventures here? Great interview. But the the highlight of that interview was when we were talking about our backstories. And he, on his, look, believe this or not, on his LinkedIn profile, he has listed on his link. Given in mind, this is Golden Gate Ventures, and he's you know accelerate you know help grow businesses like Redmart and all kinds, right? And Omise on his uh, LinkedIn profile, go and check it out. He has listed newspaper boy when he was about fourteen or fifteen. I can't remember, but. To me, that's so telling because it just gives such an insight into that person's personality, not just about work ethic, but also about you know how they feel they connect with the world as well. Because you know, if you want to project a power image on a podcast.
podcast, you do not say that you were once doing newspaper rounds. But uh, I just thought that was really insightful. So it's amazing what people offer up in a podcast. And I look for those moments where they say something off the record or, you know, they say something you can't capture on a blog post or even, you know, at a conference. And I think that's what a good podcast guest does is they open up a little bit and they sort of show you into their world. And I think if you achieve that, you, you, you get a great interview. And that comes to a very interesting point here, right? I mean, you have done so many interviews and you be able to pull out some of these insights or something about this guest that actually nobody have heard about it before. I think it's very interesting and I'm sure there are a lot of people around us who are actually inspired to start a podcast. What will be your advice for these people out there who says, hey, I'm thinking of starting a podcast. What should I do? And how should I start? That is the question of the day. We get asked that all the time, don't we? So it may sound trite, but just get started, which is you don't need much equipment to start a podcast. You can use your smartphone or you can record on your laptop. Just get started. Record the first couple with your friends. You know, your close network are going to be quite forgiving of you. You know, then work out what you have to do technology wise. That's really the first step. And there's lots of material out there you can find to sort of inform you about how to get started. I mean, I published on, on our website, the podcast podcast agency. There's a free course there, which is really just, this is the information you need. This is how you edit a podcast. These, if you're thinking about microphones, think about this. It is very easy getting started. Just get started. And the third thing I think, you know, for example, if you listen to Bernard's podcast and you, you like it and you want to model that, then go with that. I mean, find a podcast that you like and a host that you like and model their style. You know, I think that's really important. It's how do they do it? You know, everybody does a podcast in a different way. So Bernard, you and me do different kinds of podcasts and different styles, different personalities and so on, which is fantastic. It has to be different. So, you know, I think for anybody thinking of started, find that style, the podcast that they want to learn from and use that as an onboarding to get started. And I think we're also starting to building a network of podcasters. And I'm very appreciative that you have also created groups where podcasters just have private conversations about how to think about things and how to build podcasts across the region. One more interesting question I want to sort of do a follow-up on is the, how do you typically work with someone who may be interested to create a more professional podcast, maybe through your podcast agency then? Yeah. I mean, this happens quite a lot. So I suppose there are different levels on that. I mean, easily enough, if, if they wanted a podcast studio, they could come here and hire our studio in Singapore, which is, you know, it's, I, I built the studio from scratch, built inside a co-working space, but even putting in all the acoustic foam tiles, putting in the professional mics and the mixers and all of that. Because I think once you get started podcasting, you start realizing how bad a lot of audio is. I and mean, a lot of people think you can do a podcast in an office. You can't, you really can't. You need to sort of work on your getting the right setup. And so you don't need perfect, but you, you start realizing that what you think is okay is not what a listener hears as well. So the first step is, for example, hiring a studio like this, a simple plug and play, come and book the studio. The second part is, for example, if you had editors, editing work that you needed doing, I, I think this is what derails a lot of podcast hosts, right, Bernard, is that, you know, we get started and we realize editing's hard work. So, you know, you can find somebody, outsource it. I think you've done that successfully. Um, outsource it to a podcast producer. You can use us 
for example, you know, if you, if you don't have the time to do it, that's another level. That's something to think of as well. And then, you know, this works with corporates more is that if somebody just wants end to end production, so where we would go in, produce a series of podcasts for somebody, we can do that as well. That sort of full service agency. So that's all the agency side. The, the other sort of side, which we're experimenting with, which is really a side project is the accelerator, which is where we take, somebody comes with an idea and almost like a startup says, you know, I want to build this show or this podcast. And we'll say, okay, we'll, we'll look at it. We'll look at the business proposition and say, okay, we'll back this really take them from idea to show and help them with monetizing it, producing it, you know, using our studio and so on. That's the podcast accelerator where we take an idea, turn it into a business, media business, if you like. That, that's, in it, that's an experiment in itself. I would have thought if that was to work in the future, that's you know, a great way to, for us to help you know, produce the next level of content that Asia needs now that there's a lot more sort of money coming into podcasting. This is where distribution is one of the biggest problems. I think we discussed this privately, but I want to go a little bit deeper in this conversation. There is discovery and there's curation. In your opinion, how does a podcaster need to break out to gain more audience? Yeah, obviously the easiest, most available way is to hustle. You know, it's like writing a book. Once you've written the book, the work isn't done. The work's just starting. You've got to get out there and you've got to hustle. And people hustle in different ways. You can hustle by public speaking or publishing blog posts, but you've got to get out there and tell people about it. Discovery of podcasts is very difficult. I don't think you can create a podcast and hope people will discover it. What may happen? is your sort of initial tier one, your, your circle of friends will like it, follow it. That will then drop off and then you'll fade away because you're not getting an inbound organic flow of traffic to discover your podcast. So you've got to go out there and hustle. Absolutely. And, you know, talk to other podcast hosts, get on other podcasts, do, you know, cross promotion and so on. I, I think that this, you look at the other, look at the platforms that are out there, right? I think that the key is finding the right platforms to put your podcast on and investing heavily in them because I would have thought, I mean, you're on SoundCloud, I'm on SoundCloud. I think SoundCloud's the best platform available globally out there for a podcast. I mean, everybody thinks iTunes is, but iTunes is, you know, for, for a podcast host, it's terrible in terms of analytics and so on. Yeah, I think SoundCloud is the best choice, even though it was going away for such a long time. I think that is worth doubling down on. My advice to podcast hosts is like, you spend more time on SoundCloud than you do on your own website, you know, because if you're expecting people to come and to your website to discover your podcast, you know, that's a fraction of a fraction that most of it's going to happen on the platforms. These platforms are built to cater to podcast audiences and for people to discover podcasts, right? So go there and get that right. You use your website really as a you know a reference tool that people can go and check stuff out, right? Lastly, YouTube. I think this is the secret weapon for podcasters as well, is that you should really consider YouTube as probably one of the most effective discovery tools out there in any media. And you know, you don't have to have a, a face for YouTube, but you can get your content on there by different means, right? That's the next generation. I think we're going to see podcasts move into multi-channel. And that is what's going to sort of like, you know, stretch the market apart a little bit. Those that are on multiple channels, multiple platforms, and those that are simply doing it in one place. So for example, we see Spotify, we see Himalaya, which is actually the offshoot of China's largest audio content producer, Simalaya. And then there is also ACAS in Europe. And these platforms are also coming up. Do you think that a podcaster needs to invest in these other types of streaming platform? I mean, for me, Spotify is becoming very interesting because I'm seeing 
a lot more growth. And I think a lot of my current focus in distribution is actually in Himalaya, Spotify, and Acast, and even Stitcher as well. Do you see that these are the platforms you need to start investing your time? Or do you think that it's still very good to just limit yourself down to one, two platforms of choice. You have to be everywhere, really. I mean, I suppose the, the good thing about Spotify, I suppose we're going to talk about the money coming into the market as well in a minute. But the good thing about Spotify is it's just a feed. So you're submitting your existing feed to Spotify rather than uh, like with iTunes, you're not having to do a lot of work to get onto that platform. What, once you're in, you're in. Once you're accepted. SoundCloud, for example, you have to actually upload the files. If a platform's just a feed, then absolutely get on it because it's all about bonus at this stage. And it may be you need a long tail of platforms to, to make it work, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think Spotify is a very interesting play right now. It's certainly better than iTunes for podcasters. And with their recent moves, it's only going to get, it should only get better. We talk a lot about the podcaster from the viewpoint of people starting, setting up and thinking about the distribution. So I'm going to switch a bit. Now we talk about the money. What are your thoughts on the nascent podcasting market in Asia Pacific? Well, it's early days. We're about, what, maybe four or five years behind the market in maybe the US or UK or Australia. And even China, I suppose, in some aspects, we're a little bit behind if you talk about Asia outside of China. Yeah, the deals that have happened recently are going to affect us here in Asia. So Spotify, Gimla, Anchor is one. And uh, you mentioned Himalaya, Himalaya, which is very interesting as a play. I think you've got a, an interesting... Pre- I haven't really sort of... I mean, I'm on Himalaya, but I haven't really tapped Himalaya because you know, we don't do a lot of Chinese content, for example. But I think it's certainly going in the right direction. There's money coming in. We're seeing a professionalization of an industry, which is moving from a cottage industry for sure to an industry where there will be money. In any sort of shift like now, you know, where you're seeing a professionalization of talent and content, you'll have those who want to continue it as a hobby, which is fine. And I think for 95% of podcasts at the moment here in Asia, nothing's going to change. Nothing will change for them, their audiences in the next four or five years. It will stay the same. Yet maybe even it might get harder because the expectations of content from the listener are going to increase. So, you know, if money is coming into the market, it means that in theory, more professional content will get produced. Therefore, the bar of quality will go up in theory. So we saw that in YouTube, for example, like at the very early stages with YouTube, it was all just sort of, you know, very basic rudimentary content that is still there. Yet, you know, now there's a lot more professional content coming out on YouTube as a result of revenues going into those channels, right? So, you know, to break into YouTube is a lot harder now than it ever was because you can't just get away with producing a video and just straight on your iPhone, whacking it out on YouTube. In the same way, I think for most podcast hosts here in Asia, the bar will go up in the next four or five years, the hobbyists, if you like. Yet for the the professionals, the people who are trying to make money out of it, you know, now we're going to see more investment and more business models emerge. And ideally, we'll see some of those businesses actually successful, which is great because that'll that'll provide a case study for everybody else to follow. Let me help to bridge this a little bit further. So, for example, if you look at the US, UK, Australia market, it's very advertising-centric. You read a few ads, you give promo codes, you get the conversions, and that's how you know your audience strength. I mean, you hear Blue Apron, Squarespace ads all the time, okay, or Casper mattresses. 
Then you have the Chinese model, which focuses a lot on gifting, virtual gifting, very micro transaction driven. I mean, if you uh, see Malaya, you have a professor who puts up his content and he quit his university professor job and just do audio content, right? That's also where it's becoming very nuanced because China's podcasting market is not really a podcasting market. It's actually an audio learning content market. And, but then they, they aggregate it together into one market. And we are trying to tease that out from there. And then Asia Pacific itself is one market by itself. And of course, given that things like Netflix is also going very deep into local content. I mean, one of the most underscored non-successes of uh, Netflix is that it focused a lot on local content in the region. And that never shows up in their analyst calls or discussions. But this is where I want to ask you, do you think that the business model for Asia Pacific will go more US, UK, Australia type? Or is there a play for the Chinese style where you get virtual gifting, microtransaction through fans, through building audience? It's a great question, Bernard. The microtransaction model, you can see how successful that is in China because of you know the, the culture of gifting and red packets and all that sort of red envelopes and all that stuff. Yet that doesn't really sort of exist outside of the Chinese community in Asia Pacific. And we haven't really seen that work in other areas, you know, in e-commerce, for example. The advertising model obviously lends itself very well to Google, Facebook, and all the others. And so that therefore means is that, you know, if those platforms were to support podcasting here in Asia, that would obviously support an advertising-based model in Asia as well. Right now, we don't know. I think it, it will only be, for example, determined by whichever platform decides to double down on Asia Pacific first. And right now, nobody has. Spotify, I think, are probably the most likely candidate because, you know, 340 million in their deal, they still have 160 million left for podcast acquisitions. And that, that goes a long way in some places in Asia, right? So if Spotify were to come in, what kind of model would they support? Right now, the only kind of model they would propagate would be an advertising-based model because there's nothing else built into the platform, right? The interesting untalked about model is where podcasting itself is not the business. And I think that is interesting because it's how you use podcasting to upsell other services. So, you know, for example, I see podcasters have a show to upsell recruitment services, or they have a show to upsell their consultancy or even speaking gigs. You know, in that case, as a B2B market, that makes complete sense. So there's a model there which isn't really specced out because obviously we're very aware of the consumer market in podcasting, but on the B2B market, I think that is interesting. And that is certainly, it's happening right now, right here in, in Asia. People are making that work. That is a model I think people should consider as well. So what are the key verticals and markets that are currently of interest in podcasting for this region then? So, but that's not the real world, right? The real world is actually is the other 95% verticals and markets out there that we don't talk about. Yeah, there, there is a lot of obviously B2B tech podcasts here in Asia because they generally tend to be people who have exposure to other markets in business, pay attention to what's going on in the US or China or whatever. And they, they sort of take that from their business days and employ it in a podcast. Yet there is some consumer content here in Asia as well. So, I mean, I, you know, I think about the really interesting like vertical right now for podcasts, I mean, sorry, even going beyond the vertical is that how verticals use podcasting as internal communication tools. I think that's interesting is that where a MNC or, you know, a CPG brand, for example, uses podcasting to communicate with their ecosystem, because like, you know, now large 
corporations talk about themselves in ecosystems, you know, them and their technology partners and the startup innovation partners and even the, the customers, they're all part of this ecosystem. And yet the problem that they have is how do they communicate with all of these parts, these moving parts, and how do they bring this all together? What is the consistency with all of this and the glue that brings them together? What I'm seeing now is brands use podcasts to do exactly that, not to you know, for example, if you were a Unilever, not to then go out and communicate with all your potential customers about a soap powder or whatever it may be. It's internally to use a podcast to galvanize innovation and projects and plant that flag and create internal tribes. Much in the same way in the old days, people had newsletters and sort of water coolers and so on. So I think that is really interesting. It sort of like cuts the other way, the horizontal through the vertical, if you like. It's like that is where I see really interesting developments. And I think, you know, the next few years, we'll see a lot more of that. Brands who really get it using a podcast to talk to their own people rather than try and get customers, because that is possibly the most effective way of internal communication. That's a very interesting food for thought where i'm gonna ask you now is we have that private conversations with all the other podcasters there is the recent acquisition of gimlin and anchor by spotify and then there is also the investment of simalaya uh, to build out himalaya which is the english version for a chinese podcasting giant for the rest of the markets what do you think these news have in terms of impact to the podcasting market across Asia Pacific. I mean, if you're in the market as somebody who sees this as a business or impacts your business, it's, it's good news because it takes those kind of deals to de-risk it for people upstream who may be potential investors. And investors will invest in content effectively at some point, content producers and platforms here in Asia. So I think it's good news. It will make it, for example, if you are a podcast-related business, and you're trying to raise funds, it's certainly going to now make it easier. Now you have comparables for your pitch deck, right? So that's going to help things. It certainly helps any podcast uh, trying to get through to people who don't get it. That's like, you know, now you're at a networking event and people get it. Okay, right. Okay, now you know, we've just seen 300 million go into the acquisition of two podcasting entities, right? So that on its own makes things a lot easier. So I think it's a good thing. There's also, I mean, I would also add to that, there's interesting development in the US with there's a platform called Luminary. I don't know if they've just raised 100 million, but I've just seen 100 million associated with their name. So a bit like Zimalaya, Himalaya, but they set out to be the the Netflix of podcasts. If they get that right, that's going to change everything. You know, my goal here is to to build the, the Asian Gimlet, which is a podcast media house, but you know, it may take somebody like a Netflix in our space to really just blow that up on the consumer side, right? So that is very interesting. There's also one in India as well, which is a bit more distributed, but it's like a luminary, which is basically a podcast content media house effectively. So I think they're all operating under the radar right now, but in time they will appear. And it's only good news because you know you need people to, like I said before, take the first arrows. You need people to go out there and blaze the trail and educate the market. And they may not be the most successful one, but you know, look at Google. They weren't the first search engine, but they learned a lot from the mistakes of all the people that came before them, right? You looking at the Yahoo homepage that created Google, right? So, you know, the fact is that I think in the same way, we need people to go out with a lot of money, educate the market and make mistakes. And that is going to help us here in Asia. I think that's probably true. We still have some way to go in terms of educating the audience and getting them to even listen to podcasts as well. You have recently interviewed the other podcasters in Asia Pacific. I know my, I myself included. What are the general takeaways you can share about talking to them? 
And I think what are the key ideas and challenges they face as well? Yeah, that was a great experience. I mean, I spoke to 18 podcast hosts, yourself included. It was a fantastic walkthrough, the different worlds of podcasters and, and the different models as well. You know, it's really inspiring that everybody, I think, had a unique take on why they were podcasting, which is great. You know, they were all passionate about it. And everybody is trying different models as well, a different take on how podcasts could be, which I thought was, you know, there isn't sort of one model for a podcast. And even that down to the actually how you do the podcast yourself, because you know, you use a different platform, you use Zoom, I would use Skype. Some people do it face to face. Some people have a studio. Some people would use, you know, like one to one. Some people would be like one, three guests and even all the content, everything was different, Bernard. And I thought that was awesome is that there were so many options. Obviously they're not all going to work, but we need to have a choice and know what's possible. So I think the key takeaway is, is if you're thinking of starting a podcast, find out what other people are doing, find out what works, you know, rather than try and reinvent it yourself. Here are 18 people. I mean, it's on our website, ATP. So, you know, it's like here are 18 podcast hosts. If you want to go and see all the different options available, go and listen to them, right? I think the key is not to sort of try and be like all of them, but find the one who sort of really sounds like what you want to do and sort of learn from their mistakes. And in terms of ideas and challenges they face, do you get an insight from all 18 of us? What are the things that we really look out for and what are the things that we are willing to sacrifice if we do not have a choice? You know, I fa- we all face this challenge of, of podcasting. Podcasting is like spinning plates, isn't it? It's like, you know, you're, what, you're, like, you're spinning one plate, which is like, okay, I'm doing the podcast and I'm editing it. And then there's another plate, which is I've got to produce it and then I've got to publish it and then I've got to find another guest. And only when you start podcasting do you realize how difficult it really is. It looks quite easy because it looks like, you know, Bernard and Graham are having a conversation. How difficult is that? Yeah, there's a lot behind the, the scenes which you don't see. I think it's the process and that is really what derails a lot of podcasters. So to go back to the 18 podcast hosts, I think what all of them face is the challenge of process because we, we talked about this, Bernard, it's like there's that sort of valley of death, the podcast hump is that, you know, I think most people can do six podcasts, but then, you know, the, the motivation, the, the, the novelty wears out, you start sort of running out of guests, the, the sort of the initial likes and shares on fa- Facebook or LinkedIn disappear and then you're sort of left thinking, right, I'm, I'm now sort of facing the reality of what I need to do here. I need to grind this out. And I think most podcasters fail at that point because they don't have a good process because they then are staring at an inbox of three or four episodes that need producing. And that can be really demotivating. So good process is really important. Thankfully, there are tools out there and more and more tools are getting developed to help us podcasters. So I think people are listening to our pain if you like, as podcasters and, and doing something about it. I mean, you've got, there's a lot of good automation software out there that you can use. There are great editing tools coming out now, which really reduce the editing time. I mean, like, for example, Ophonic with like AU Phonic, I think is an uh, amazing tool for editing. Zencaster is one. I haven't used it myself, but I had, I think it was Daniel Song used Zencaster from the VC cast. Um, forgive me if I'm right. Or it might've been Jason Choi. I can't remember. I interviewed. They use Zencaster, which is sort of, you know, like live podcasting with editing on the fly. And that sounds pretty awesome. So Zencaster without the last D. All, all of that's here. I think we're sort of, again, it's the sort of professionalization of a cottage industry is that, you know, we had some very rudimentary tools until now. And, and you know, it, it's taken just sheer 
stubbornness like on the behalf of people like you and me to get through to the hundreds of episodes, right? But for most people, that's going to be quite hard. So it's getting easier. Yet I think people still need to realize actually podcasting is very difficult behind the scenes. And you've got to get that right. You've got to get a process in place. That is, I think, the key gotcha for most podcast hosts. That's where they fall apart. I'm going to have a, one more question. And I just want to ask you this. From your point of view, in three to five years time, where do you want to see what you're doing to measure what you think success means to you? I mean, for Asia Tech Podcasts and for Pitch Tech Asia TV, what do you see the end point in three to five years time? What do you want to achieve by then? Yeah, I mean, if... if- I could hear a podcast host who was successful say, yep, you know, I'm, I'm up and running, I'm successful and I'm really doing what I'm passionate about. And I'm, I'm, this is all because of Asia Tech Podcast or Pitch Tech Asia. I think, yeah, that's job done. If I can enable those people to do that, I think that would be a, a great measure of success. You know, I, I went into this telling people I want to build the MTV of the startup ecosystem. You know, MTV came into the music industry in the 80s and it just blew it up. It democratized music for a whole generation. You know, unless you're white or you knew the radio DJ, the chances of getting airplay were very slim for a lot of artists, a lot of talent. But then, you know, along came MTV with cheap Betamax. You know, Betamax changed everything or, you know, that video generation changed everything. And we're seeing that cheap technology, democratized technology, now in the hands of normal people who can create shows. We can create a t- can you imagine that? I, I can create a TV show here with that a CNN would spend millions on trying to produce, right? I mean, the production values are different, but the point is, is that I can get in the game as well. I can get, I can create a radio show. I can create a podcast. Like MTV, I think if we can enable those voices and give them a voice and then them to make change within their networks and their ecosystem, I think that would would be truly awesome. That's what I want to do. I want to give a voice to all those people. The only way we can do that is to give them the tools to do that. Because, you know, I can't, I suppose you get to a point in your career where you you start thinking about, you know, what am I doing? How do I make a real impact? And it's just one of me yet, you know, I can't go and create, you know, for example, if I wanted to create positive social impact, it's just one of me yet. If I could empower somebody to start a podcast about that and them to then go and influence a hundred people. That would be truly amazing. And that is what I want to build. So in three to five years time, I'm hoping I've progressed down that road. Who knows what what direction it would take, but you know, the destination is very much set that the the actual journey towards that destination is going to go. It's not going to go in a straight line. I think if you surround yourself with good people along the journey, it will be a great adventure. And I think this is a perfect time to have a stop here. But of course, this conversation will not end because I'm probably going to ask you to come back on the show sometime in the future. So in closing, I would like to ask you two questions. My first question is, can you recommend both movie, podcasts or something that have made an impact to your work and personal life recently? Well, let me recommend a podcast because we're on topic. I think Joe Rogan inspired me to do this because in the face of criticism, I think he demonstrated that there is an audience, a huge audience for long form audio, you know, and his, his shows, even on YouTube, he'll get like 3 million views. And it's just two guys talking. And that really inspired me because I think even on his show, Joe Rogan, he said, somebody asked him, he said, Joe, like, you know, what's your show about? And he said, well, it's like a conversation. It's a three hour conversation. And his friend said to him, Joe, people don't have three hour conversations anymore. And he said, 
yeah, that's why I'm doing it. I think that was for me, that was the moment that inspired me. It's like trading that campfire moment. And, you know, I understood by, I think how Joe Rogan's podcast inspired me is that, I mean, I don't like all of his guests for sure. It's a real hit or miss, but the format itself inspired me to understand that podcasting is not about interviews. It's about, well, for me at least, it's about creating the conversations that are missing in our day-to-day lives. You know, there was a time when we sat around and we talked before the mobile phones. And I'm sorry because, you know, my role for 12 years in the telecoms industry was helping mobile companies understand young people and selling phones to to teenagers, right? So, but that generation has grown up not having conversations. What I saw when Joe Rogan was successful in his podcast is that the vindication of that is it's the conversations that are missing. And that's only going to get worse, right? More and more of our lives become digitized, yet we're pushing back on the analog side, which is podcasting. It's the human conversation. That really inspired me. It showed me there is still a a real sort of inside us, a yearning for that human story. Yeah. I mean, if anybody hasn't watched Joe Rogan's podcast, go and have a look at it because it will challenge you to think about what podcasts can be or can't be. And you may decide that you don't like it which is fine. It's a successful model and it says something about what people are looking for right now. And I agree with you. I've listened to a couple of episodes of the show with uh, Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk, and that's where Elon Musk smoked pot in front of everybody. But that conversation itself, the pot smoking was really not the most important thing. Exactly. What was most important in the conversation was all the technology conversations about building rockets, Obs- which I don't think people really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you listen to that podcast. I mean, with the one everybody talked about that, that obvious incident, but I watched that and listened to it with Elon Musk. And actually, I thought he did a really good job of helping Elon Musk tell his story. Elon Musk is not a very good storyteller. He's, he's a little bit inarticulate, but when he gets it right, he's amazing. And I thought, I watched that and I thought, wow, I really get this guy. I really t- I get what he's trying to do. That was just a great, piece of obviously entertainment part but in terms of conversation i thought it was amazing i enjoyed listening to that whole conversation i think i actually listened to it twice which makes it about four hours for that conversation it would probably be really interesting to think about some of those uh, discussions or storytelling i think you mentioned which is very important to you so my last question to you how do my audience find you yeah so i'm at asia tech podcast website which is atp.show simple enough and I mean, if you're a startup raising funds, then go to pitchdeck.asia. My apologies. ATP.show for the podcast. And if you're raising funds as a startup, go to pitchdeck.asia. And I'll put the links up for you as well. How do they find you in terms of uh, social media? Like your Twitter account? I think you're quite proliferate in Twitter. No, I'm not a big on Twitter so much. I mean, I do post, but it's not my main. LinkedIn's best for me because I can actually talk to people on LinkedIn. Twitter, I'm just not up on the game on that one. Apologies. But find me on LinkedIn, Graham Brown. I'm there. You can find me at Bernard Leon. Just Google me. And you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, Himalaya, Spotify. And of course, in any case, drop me your feedback in comments, five stars on iTunes or a star on Overcast and Pocketcast. And in any way possible, Graham, it's a pleasure to actually have you on the show. And I think you've been doing good work to promote podcasting across the region. So I wish you all the best. And I hope that you can continue this journey of storytelling with the rest of Asia. Bernard, thank you so much for the opportunity to chat with you. Really enjoyed it and love what you're doing as well. Obviously, you know, Credit is due to you as well for being one of the the grandfathers of the podcasting scene here in Asia. So keep it up as well. Okay. I sound very old, but let's continue to chat at some point in time.